Well, why don't we go ahead and pray uh, before we get started looking at 1 Kings chapter 17. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. And as we were just singing, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Uh, we pray that you would use the truth we see here to encourage us, challenge us, help us to understand better about how you work. And I pray that you would also use the experiences you've recorded here to help us see also some parallels uh, in our own lives, and uh, both good and bad, and, and that uh, we can recognize areas where we need to grow. Pray that you give us insight into what you've written, help us to understand it and apply it correctly, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, before, before we read, though, I wanted to uh, show you some pictures here. Uh, this first one, you may not even barely be able to, to tell there is a picture there, but um, it's a dark sky, and the point I'm trying to make with that is sometimes in order to see certain things, it takes a dark backdrop. So, for example, if you were to go to a fireworks show, when do they do the fireworks? at night when it's dark, right? So the light that you see from the fireworks is more clear. It's not blocked out by the sun. So in making some spiritual application from that same principle, some of the darkest times that we see in life are some of the times that God shines the brightest and makes his truth seem the most clear. So. We're going to see in the next several chapters of 1 Kings, actually, and how Ahab is the ruler of Israel, and it is the darkest of times in Israel, and yet God shows himself faithful during those very, very dark times. So we're going to see here in chapter 17, I think, a f familiar story, um, but uh, hopefully we'll be reminded of some helpful things as we see how God shows himself faithful in providing for his people and strengthening their faith, especially as we'll see also at the end. So I ask you to read with me, or look over with me as we read 1 Kings 17 and verses 1 through 6 to get started here. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who is of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, Surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of Jordan, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. All right, so that's uh, one through six. So I want you to see, first of all, here as we, as we look at this, that there's a confrontation that happens here right at the beginning of this chapter between Ahab and Elijah. So we're going to see, I, I, I mentioned many weeks ago when we started this book, that chapter 17 is where we begin to see the prominent role of the prophets 
in the book of Kings. And so we see that here right away with Elijah. And if, and if you remember what we were covering there at the end of uh, chapter 16, I know maybe it got lost in all the business meeting stuff you're remembering instead, but um, we were covering there um, how Ahab was taken over and we were seeing how Ahab was doing exceedingly more wicked than all the kings before him and uh, was uh, worshiping Baal and had married Jezebel. And, and then at the end of the chapter in verse 34, it talks about how in the days of Ahab, there was a man who rebuilt the city of Jericho to the destruction of his two sons. And the point that we were making with that was that uh, under Ahab's rule, even though he wasn't necessarily the one that built the city, under Ahab's rule, what we see is a clear disregard for the word of God and the defiance against God and his word that's going to characterize his reign, um, as we'll see in the next several chapters. But what we see here at the beginning of verse 1 of uh, chapter 17 is the confrontation uh, with Elijah confronting Ahab, essentially, um, and the false worship he's doing of worshiping Baal. So look again at verse 1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was one of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So we see here, first of all, the messenger Elijah. Now, if you know your Hebrew, or you have footnotes in your Bible, do you, do you know what the name Elijah means? What's that? Okay, no, that's Jehovah Jireh. That's from Genesis, right? Um, do you remember on the cross that Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? Eli means my God. And you can then guess what Jah means, or Yah means, is referring the shortened form of the name of the Lord, right? So, in other words, he's saying, my God is the Lord, or my God is Yahweh. That's the name Elijah. So, a direct confrontation with the promotion of the worship of Baal with the introduction of Elijah. Um, so, his name means, my God is the Lord. He's from Gilead, we're told, and he's a Tishbite. Um, not exactly sure what that means. It was interesting. You read commentators sometimes trying to figure out, and the commentator actually said, we're not exactly sure what that means. But uh, maybe I didn't cover enough resources. But um, the point is, he is a prophet from the Lord. He says he stands before the Lord. He is a prophet, and he is speaking to Ahab here. And what is the word that he brings? What's the message? He says there's going to be no dew or no rain um, as the Lord lives. Now notice he says here, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. That, that's a phrase you will see throughout the scriptures. They use this repeatedly in the Old Testament. And it's, and it's basically just a way of saying God is alive. We know that for a fact. So what I'm telling you is just as true as that. So in contrast to Baal worship, which Ahab has been doing and promoting, 
he's saying the Lord, the God of Israel, is alive. You remember Jezebel's father's name and what that meant? I know these are really technical details and not life-changing uh, facts that you need to memorize, but her father's name meant Baal is alive. So we see several different points of this is just a direct contradiction of what Ahab and his family are promoting. So um, as the Lord lives, he says, this is with certainty, this is going to happen. This is an undeniable fact that there will be no rain or no dew except at my word. Now you might also ask, um, why, why is that significant? Why is that important here? Well, if you understand Baal, the purpose of worshiping Baal was Baal was a god of fertility. And, and while that led to immorality and all kinds of inappropriate things, one of the reasons why they worship Baal is because they believed Baal would bring rain and prosperity. And then if you're an agricultural community, you live based on what you grow off of the farm. Having rain and prosperous crops are a key to your survival. So, it is making a strong point here that Baal doesn't bring and control the rain. God does. The Lord God is in control. So there's a very strong contradiction here right at the beginning of chapter 17 where the wickedness of the nation is being confronted by the prophet here. So, this is also an encouraging thing to think about in light of, and like we were starting with and talking about the darkness of the times, right? We have a period of history in Israel where it's very dark, very sinful, and yet we have a very strong opposition to that from God. Now, many in the nation at this time uh, probably were experiencing, because of the rain, great difficulty and famine because of this. And yet we're going to see how God does provide specifically for Elijah, but God provides for his children in very dark times. And even if we don't always see, it is encouraging to know and understand that God doesn't let evil go unchecked. He has a plan, and while many times... He will let it run its course. He has a purpose. He's in control. And he ultimately contains it to fit his purposes and not let it go beyond. So we see here this confrontation in, in verse 1 with Elijah and Ahab. But we're also going to see um, in uh, verses 2 to 6 how God provides uh, in private for Elijah. So let's look at that. Verse 2, it says... The word of the Lord came to him, that is to Elijah, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Alright, so God reveals his plan for Elijah by telling him the place that he is to go. And uh, just as a little uh, geographical picture here, um, the brook Cherith there is in this area, so east of the Jordan. Um, over there, so a bit away from Samaria and the kingdom of the north. And God is essentially going to protect Elijah there and provide for him. He says how he's going to provide for him. 
in verse 4, he describes it saying, It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he gives them water through the, 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 the brook there, and he's going to give him food from the ravens. Um, what do you know about ravens in the Old Testament? Any Old Testament scholars here know? Were, were ravens clean or unclean animals? Unclean. And yet, they're God's chosen means of providing for him. Isn't that interesting? Why didn't he use a dove or something, right? Or a, a kind of bird that they could eat? Well, maybe he'd be tempted to kill the bird and eat it, right? He'd <laughs> get too much, no? Not sure, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about in how God works. Doesn't God sometimes use means that surprise us to accomplish his purposes? He is God. He's in control of all things, and he can use all these things. Now, we know ultimately in the New Testament, he's going to ultimately say all food is clean. You can... You can eat whatever. That restriction is gone. But he chooses to use the ravens. Um, and, and he doesn't protest, interestingly. Or at least that's not recorded if he did. <laughs> but um, God provides through the ravens. Verse 4. Notice uh, verse 5, Elijah's obedience. It says, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. So he obeyed. So I have a little... Uh, Pictures here, the ravens here are provided for them. They kind of look like crows a little more, don't they? But uh, um, regardless, uh, he was provided by ravens there. And he obeyed. And we see also in verse 6, the fulfillment of God's word um, that this does indeed happen. Verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. So we have here God fulfilling uh, his promises, keeping his word. Um, as God always does. But it's interesting to think of a, a few applications, one of which we already talked about is how God provides. Sometimes he pro provides for us in ways that we wouldn't expect. Um, we also see that he does bring judgment. He's bringing judgment here on the nation of Israel, and that results in lean times for the nation and many people in there, but he does also provide for his children. It seems like ancient history, I, I don't think anyone here was alive at that time, but uh, you remember the talk we heard from either great-grandparents or grandparents or, or parents about the Great Depression. It, it was very trying to, I, when I was a uh, college student at uh, Maranatha, there was an elderly couple that I stayed with in the summertime because I was working at a church up there, and instead of going home, I would... I work at the church and stay with this elderly couple, and I just remember the elderly lady talking about some of the things in her childhood which fell during the Great Depression, and she just talked about how uh, the concept of our day of giving allowances and, and kids just having money to spend, she's like, there was no such thing. She's like, you, you had to work hard, and... There would be ways occasionally you could earn something, but you had to earn everything. And even if you did, it wasn't very much. Um, 
Though America has experienced some challenges and some ups and downs financially, we have not really known the financial hard times like they had in those days, right? But regardless of whether it's like the Great Depression or whether it's great abundance, God provides for his children, doesn't he? He gives us what we need. We see an example of him providing for Elijah. It's also interesting to think about here the picture of Elijah. When you think about Elijah's role, he's not just representing the average believer, though, though he is one. He's the prophet. And what, what is the job of the prophet is to carry the word of God, right? To communicate the word of God. So think about he has said there's going to be no rain except at my word. And he basically goes into hiding. I think one of the other subtle points here is the absence of the word of God in Israel at this time. How devastating a judgment that is for God's word not to be being actively communicated in a nation. How, how terrible. And that actually is a judgment in and of itself. Very, very dark times in Israel at this point. All right, but let's also see how God provides for a surprise individual. So we saw how God provided in a surprise way with those unclean birds. But we're going to also see how he provides for an unexpected individual that we wouldn't necessarily anticipate he would provide for. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So it's interesting here, we have a change of the means of provision. That in and of itself is an interesting thought. We tend to become accustomed to the, the ways in which God provides for us, doesn't he? Don't we? And when there's a disruption to that, isn't there a tendency in our hearts to get nervous, to distrust what's going on? Sometimes God forces a job change. And uh, I remember uh, my, my... I guess this is recorded, they could hear this, but my, my parents are not born-again believers. But I remember a situation when my mother uh, got terminated from a job. She was basically a, a waitress. Um, I was born when my mom was pretty young, and, and uh, she hadn't been able to finish her college uh, degree at that point. But she lost this job, and I remember her getting the phone call and just the emotions that she was going through. It was just a really hard time for them. But yet, what ended up happening in that situation was my mom ended up going back to school and getting a nursing degree and then became a nurse. And then she had a job where she made way better money than she was ever making in any of the jobs that she had before. And that's what she's still doing to this day and is probably going to retire soon from that career. You know, God does those kinds of things in our lives, doesn't, don't, doesn't he? He changes sometimes how he's meeting our needs. And instead of getting frustrated and upset and worried, 
We just need to trust him. And that's what's happening here with Elijah. The brook that he's been using dries up. And then God gives fresh direction that he's to go to a new place. And um, this place is um, a place you, you might not expect. He says in verse 9, Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I've commanded a widow to provide for you. That's also kind of a funny thought. Is A widow is going to be the one providing for him, right? Well, let me not get too far ahead. Let's, let's look at that location, the city of Zarephath. Let's uh, look at the map again. Um, now that is way up in the north, and what are you noticing, hopefully? That's not a part of the kingdom of Israel, right? So the Jewish people are very particular, right? They, they uh, are the Jews, and then anyone who's not a Jew is of the nations or is a Gentile, right? So this is Gentile territory um, up in the Phoenician area, or Sidon is where this is at. Does anyone remember last week a connection with Sidon? You weren't prepared for the quiz today, I understand. Jezebel is from Sidon. She is of the Sidonians. Her dad was the king of the Sidonians. So God is putting Elijah in Jezebel's home country. And that's where he's going to provide for Elijah and do some other really interesting things. So this is significant. Why? Because it's also Baal country. This is where the king is promoting Baal worship and this is where Jezebel came from, the, the zealot for Baal Jezebel herself, she comes from this country. This is where Baal is worshipped before it even got pushed in to Israel by Ahab and Jezebel. So this is significant. And remember, Baal is alive is the name of her dad, right? So they're promoting Baal worship. And as we said, this is a non-Jewish location. Why didn't God have him go to a, a Jewish widow somewhere? And... Uh, it's interesting. Our Lord Jesus brings it up in Luke chapter 4. He brings it up as a rebuke to the Jews who think just because they're descendants of Abraham, therefore they're automatically favored and in the kingdom. And Jesus points out that in Elijah's day, he went to a non-Jewish widow. And, he, and Jesus says, was there not widows in Israel at the time? Surely there was. But God is not just the God of the Jews, ultimately. This is another hint to the gospel and how the gospel is going to more than just the Jews. It's to the whole world. So, this is actually a very significant detail. And the new provider is going to be a widow. The widow is going to be uh, the new provider. And we see that... Uh, She's going to be the one to provide. Now, again, this is a little difficult for us to understand in our day. In our day, we have Social Security. Your, your husband dies. You get his Social Security money, and you, you get that. If you have a parent that dies, you get Social Security money. We have government programs or you know, just lots of, lots of different resources. But in a society where they live by the farm and the things they grow on the farm... 
If you're a woman by yourself, that's a hard life. It's hard to make it. It's a time of desperation, even if there's rain and, and things are growing and doing well. It's difficult. And yet, God, again, using means to provide that would seem unexpected. That's what he's going to do here with the widow. So, he says here in verse 9 that he's commanded the widow to provide for him. So, it's already been ordained by God. And putting this all together, I know we've said it all, but just I want to, again, draw our attention to it. This just is glory to God. Think about what he's doing here. He is sending his prophet into Baal country. He is providing for his prophet with a widow who on her own would have a hard time surviving without a husband. He is providing for this prophet through what we'll learn is a starving widow, one who thinks she's going to die. And she's a Gentile. God's people, the nation of Israel, were rejecting him. And yet he's reaching out to a Gentile and going to ultimately reward her and uh, bring blessing to her household for how she helps the prophet. So let's see how he does that. In verses 10 and 11, we see the prophet's response of obedience. It says, So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little jar of water that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. All right, so we see the prophet goes. He sees her and asks for a drink of water and some bread. So notice, though, her protest in verse 12. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread. Only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat and die. So she said, I don't have any bread to give you. All I have is a little flour and oil, and I'm making my last meal. I'm going to die. You really want me to give you my last meal <laughs> right before I die? Um, but then he challenges her and encourages her in verses 13 and 16. Notice what he said, or 13 14. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first. And bring it out to me. And afterwards you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel. The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted. Nor shall the jar of oil be empty. Until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she is given a promise. But what is expected? She is given this promise, but she's expected to obey first. She needs to give of the first of it to Elijah. So again, I got these uh, uh, pictures from uh, Sweet Publishing. They have these, uh, many of these stories. So the woman's gathering sticks. She's preparing to die uh, by having her last meal with her son. Um, now, but again, think about that. Where is she at? She's in Baal country. Right? Isn't that where it's the God of fertility and the, and the God that gives them abundance of rain and supply? And yet the people there are on the brink of starvation? Huh. Interesting. So 
She is worried, of course, understandably, she's going to die, and yet Elijah challenges her to obey, and we see the example here in 15 and 16 that she does obey um, and gives the prophet some food. Look at verse 15 and 16. It says, So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. So we have the obedience of the widow. She did, she did what he commanded. What, what did it take to do that? Faith. She's acting in faith. She is trusting his word. She's trusting that she is going to be provided to. She's believing the promise. She's walking by faith at this point. And they are provided for. It tells us, verse 16, The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he again spoke through Elijah. So, things are going great, right? Here's this woman in Baal country who seemingly comes to trust in the Lord and is providing for his prophet. It's going great, right? If it only worked that way, right? Always just goes well and no problems, no difficulties. But what happens? We, we see trouble comes to, the, to the, widow, the widow's household. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says, Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, uh, became sick. That's the son became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Now you understand, he died, right? It's not just that he's having trouble breathing. This is an actual death. And we, we see that uh, her response to that is that of anger. Look at verse 18. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death? She just seemed to be trusting in the Lord and providing for his prophet, right? She seems to be starting down the road of a, becoming a follower of the Lord, and yet this terrible thing happens to her. And what's her response? This is my sin. You're trying to point out my sin. You're trying to show me that I'm a sinner and you're trying to punish me by killing my son. Now, we, we have the benefit of knowing, and probably most of you know the rest of the story already. But she's in the midst of it. She doesn't know the rest of the story. And that's her reaction. But that reaction is not abnormal, is it? We, we look at God's faithfulness. We know God's faith. We look at His promises. And we too react that way sometimes. If you're providing for her and her son, why would you take it? That doesn't make sense. We, we have that kind of reaction at times too, do we not? If God's doing this, then why did He allow this? She's angry. She's responding in anger. 
and she's pointing to the wrong reason. And that's part, I think, sometimes why we get angry, isn't it? Because we come up with the reason in our mind why it's happening, and it's not accurate. And that reason we've come up with just further frustrates us, makes us angry. She's angry, and she's taking it out on Elijah, right? You, why did you do this to me? Why did you come to my house and bring this trouble on me? She's pointing the finger at Elijah, right? So what does Elijah do? Elijah takes the boy and begins to pray, seek the Lord about this. Look at verse 19 and 20. He said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living, and he laid him on his own bed. Now notice Elijah's response. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity on the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? <laughs> the, the prophet's confused as well, isn't he? This doesn't make sense. What are you doing here? You sent me to this widow to take care of me. She's trusted uh, for you to provide. She's providing for me. Why did you bring this trouble on her? It doesn't make sense. Well, um, Elijah then goes on to do what you should do in that situation. He prays about it. Verse 21. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times, and he called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. So Elijah's calling out to God, uh, stretches himself out upon the child. There, there's not a magical significance to that. I think the point is simply he was expecting God to answer his prayer, bring him back to life, and... Uh, warm him up um, and uh, uh, bring him back to health here. So he's praying in anticipation of the Lord answering. Verse 22, it says, The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. So the boy ultimately is restored, and it says, verse 23, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother and Elijah said, see, your son is alive. Your son is alive. What, what's the point of this? Why, why, why does this happen? Well, it wasn't so that we could have uh, James 5 written about Elijah praying, right? Now, to me, I, it's one of the things I thought was interesting when I'm studying this about Elijah and it talks about Elijah praying, what's, what's the most, one of the most significant answered prayers that you can point to certainly has to be the resurrection of the boy here, right? But that's not actually the example James uses. James uses the prayer about no rain for three and a half years, right? What's the point of this? God is showing himself faithful to this young believer. Look at her response in verse 24. She says, or then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So I believe this is a recognition on her part, her, a strengthening of her faith that has happened. She's gone from newfound believer 
in just learning and basic things to trust the Lord to now having a settled maturity in her understanding that this is God's man and God's word has been coming through him and she has a resolved trust in him now as a result of what's happened. And we know from our study in 2 Corinthians, our study in James, the same things that God brings difficulty and hardship, things that don't make sense to us, to ultimately strengthen our faith, to cause us to endure in our walk with Him, that we would trust Him even more than we ever have before, to grow and to mature, because God is after our spiritual growth, isn't He? He is not interested in just a one-time stagnant faith that never grows. He is interested in producing greater Christ-likeness, making us more like His Son, increasing our faith so that the things we go through, we increasingly learn to trust Him and remain resolved to trusting Him through whatever He brings. So that's the good news. One of the pieces, I guess you could say, of the bad news is Sometimes throughout life it gets harder, gets more challenging because he continues to bring growth. He continues to expose areas in which we're not trusting him so that we do. So the end result is a strengthened faith. God provides for her and strengthens her faith as a result of this. And... It just shows us, again, how God works. God works sometimes in ways that we don't understand. So what does that force us to do? We're left to not trust ourselves because we can't figure it out. You know, we, uh, we like to analyze things, at least some of us do. I, I kind of get analytical sometimes and why is this happening? Or da, 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 and figure this all out. And my wife can tell you stories, even you know, emails, things that people send. It's like, oh, they said this, but what they really meant to, you know, doing all this analytical stuff, right? But we can't do that with how God is working. We can see patterns throughout the scriptures and understand his character and his nature and, and, and general ways in which he works, but many times the specifics in our lives, we have no idea doesn't make sense. And we're left with just having to trust Him because we know He is good. We know He is faithful. We know He is reliable. And we just simply need to trust Him. And that, that's an example of what we see here. God provides for His people. He demonstrates, and He's demonstrating, He demonstrates to this one woman that He is the true God and to Elijah as well. And he is confronting the nation of Israel with their, their rejecting him and turning to Baal. And he is going to continue to confront the nation of Israel. And one of my favorite stories of the Old Testament is coming in chapter 18. Where God is going to use Elijah to confront the prophets of Baal, right? And, and call upon their God for fire to come down on their sacrifice, right? Because God is proving to Israel that He is God. And even though they're turning away from Him, 
he is still demonstrating who he is and encouraging people to turn to him and trust in him. And it's encouraging also to see here a little glimpse of how he even does that with the Gentiles back in the Old Testament, a foreshadowing of what would happen in Christ ultimately, where through Christ all the nations of the earth are blessed because everyone in the world is able to come in and trust Christ even if they are not a Jewish person. So thanks be to God for His provision, how He provides for His people and reveals the truth and making His salvation available and how He works in our lives. That it forces us to grow in our trust of Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank you for how you work. Uh, sometimes it causes us confusion and even frustration because of our immaturity. But we thank you that you are patient with us and you bring these things in our lives not to harm us, not, not to expose us and embarrass us like this woman mentioned. You're, you're pointing out my sin. You, you do point out our sin so that we can confess it. But... We're thankful, Father, that you're not working to embarrass us or just make us look bad. You're working in our lives to strengthen our faith in you. And we thank you for that and pray that you continue to do that work and you continue to help us to grow and trust in you. And we pray also, Father, if I may take just a moment, Father, we are concerned about our nation as well. There's been a long history in our nation, too, of honoring you and seeking you. And, and many, 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 many people in our country have forsaken that foundation that we have. Father, we pray you continue to protect our country, protect the freedoms to do this, to, to meet together publicly, to worship you and to preach your word. I pray that you continue to protect those freedoms. And even if you do allow them to be taken away, help us to still be faithful to you in spite of it. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.